0: Welcome to the Why on Earth Community's Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. Today I am so delighted that we have visiting with us Osha Chestnut Perry. Hi, Osha.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you on the show. So, Osha was born and raised in Boulder, Colorado, and graduated from Boulder High School, after which she moved to St. Louis. To get a well being coach certification. She also has worked as a medical assistant at an integrative clinic there in St. Louis for a year and is also studying at St. Louis University, pursuing a bachelor's degree in neuroscience with a pre med emphasis. Now, at that same clinic, she's working as a cryotherapy technician and helping folks with their. Holistic health and well being uh, through that clinic's integrated work. OSHA is passionate about cooking, the outdoors, dancing, animals, the brain, and her family. Now, that's a very special note because I have to also share with our audience, some of whom already know this, many of whom probably don't. I invited OSHA to be on the show because I happen to know she is a particularly bright and gifted young lady. Uh, in fact, I know this and knew this when she was two years old, and uh, by that time had already learned to identify around 20 or so of the medicinal plants and herbs that grow in the Rocky Mountain wilderness here in Colorado. The reason I know that, of course, is because is my daughter. And uh, it is such a joy, Osha, to have you on the show and, and to be able to share with folks a number of threads and conversations you and I have been having for, for quite some time now. And uh, so before we dive in, I just, I just want to say welcome and thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Dad. It's great to be here and I'm happy to do this with you.
0: Wonderful. So we're going to talk today about healthcare, education, food and nutrition. And I'm wondering what with your studies, with what you're doing professionally, you have a very interesting perspective on our healthcare system in this country. What what does it look like to you from from your vantage point?
1: Yeah. So um, in the United States, healthcare looks a little bit different than it does in a lot of other developed countries. Um, obviously, it's not universal. Um, there isn't, you know. There's no backing by the government to ensure that everyone has free or affordable health care. Um, so that looks a lot different from a lot of countries in let's say Europe. So already that is kind of an issue and I think one that most people are pretty well aware of. Um, but you know, even just taking a broader look at medicine, something that I think people aren't aware of is that uh, the training to be a medical practitioner is actually pretty harsh. And so that kind of sets the stage for what medicine looks like and what healthcare looks like in this country because our practitioners don't know how to take care of themselves physically or don't have the structures set up to live a well and balanced lifestyle And they're the ones that are giving us advice on health and wellness, you know, and so that's kind of my view. And, um, you know, there's definitely a change happening as well, I would say a lot of people are becoming aware of this, especially people in the industry. And there are people trying to make a change of that. Um, Like where I work, um, we have a lot of Functional medicine practitioners, which if for those people that don't know what functional medicine is um, It's a look at the whole being and the whole person instead of just an organ system um, Or you know a symptom list and so they're going to go and look at the root cause of it of a disease Maybe it's actually from your birth Maybe it was a little bit of a traumatic birth maybe it was something that you grew up in you know in your childhood In your adolescence, maybe um, you were exposed to heavy metals. Maybe you lived in a really polluted place. Um, You know, maybe you just didn't have the best diet. They're going to look at all of those things to see, okay, if you have diabetes, when was it onset? Why did it it appear then versus 10 years earlier or 10 years later? Um, And then kind of really holding your hand through that to through changing your life and changing the way you live to support that illness and to make some epigenetic changes. And you can see what those practitioners, they themselves are living that as well. And so for me, it's very hopeful to be surrounded by those kinds of practitioners. And it really is a change in the culture. And it's not just happening in St. Louis, it's happening all over the country. And I think that's pretty exciting.
0: It's so great so i want to come back to a few terms that you just uh mentioned such as sure. epigenetics however um you know one of the things with the work we're doing through the why on earth community is is really balancing information with inspiration with things we can do in our own lives in our own communities to improve health well-being thriving and of course stewardship and sustainability Mm-hmm. and i i'm just wondering so when you when you all are working with patients and you're seeing perhaps issues related to uh exposure to pollutants uh poor diet over years etc what are the what are the categories or the 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 lists of recommendations you you make to folks to help them get on the track of improved health and well-being
1: so At the clinic I work, there's a lot of integrative therapies that would be recommended. Um, From kind of my perspective and just your average person that maybe doesn't have access to those things, it really comes down to inflammation and toxicity. So toxicity or inflammation is basically the two roots of any illness or disease. And so it's important to address both of those things. you know, we've known this since Hippocrates and Asclepius in Greece that food is thy medicine, right? So a lot of diet is, is going to be key to addressing those two things. So if we think about toxicity, um, you know, like when you're buying conventionally grown things or produce that's, you know, made with a lot of pesticides or even a lot of processed foods that have additives in them, that's going to increase your toxic burden. And that's not something scary because we actually have these systems in our body that are built to filter those toxicities. And you know, we're very resilient, just in our body as- aspect, we're very resilient creatures. Um, but there does, it's like a buffer system, right? So there's, it reaches a certain threshold and then you start to see some symptoms. And so it's really important to be mindful of what you're subjecting your body to, whether it be, you know, putting yourself in a situation where you're around a lot of smoke or a lot of air pollution, um, trying to get out, you know, near some trees to where you're in an environment that it's a little bit more filtered. Um, Being mindful about the food that you put in your body, you know, is it grown locally? Is it in season? Is it kind of agreeing with the rest of the experience that your body is having? Um, Is it grown naturally? Is it fresh? All those kinds of things. And then are you cooking it properly? So at the right temperature, um, ensuring that you aren't cooking out all the nutrients, etc. And then on the inflammation piece, um, a lot of that actually has to do with stress. So really limiting your stress, um, kind of taking up you know, more mindful practices. So letting yourself experience silence every day, um, again, getting outside, you know, exposing yourself to the fresh air, to the sunshine, kind of allowing your nervous system to calm down every day because even driving in a car is unnatural for our nervous system. It's something that was invented, you know, a hundred and what, 50 years ago or something like that. And, um, less. I don't
0: know. A little less, but more, more, yeah, more than 100 years ago. About sure. a, a century ago, yeah.
1: Okay, um, and so it's, that's not enough time for your nervous system to catch up to that. And so even something as simple as driving in a car is going to cause stress. And so it's just important to be mindful of this and to limit those things when possible and to supplement with other um, de-stressing practices
0: it's so beautiful. What I love about the framework that you're describing is it's relatively simple and straightforward and easy to understand inflammation and toxicity. Um, Excellent, right? It's, I, I can think of so many ways that we know folks can reduce stress and can reduce toxicity and can reduce inflammation. And one of the things I'm thinking about right now is, uh, our ambassadors are planning to have events a little later this year where we will uh, plant a whole bunch of baby spider plants. Folks are probably familiar with spider plants uh, to put inside your home, your bedroom, perhaps your office. And we know that indoor air quality as we increasingly urbanize uh, is essentially one of the Ways more and more of us are being exposed to toxicity, mm-hmm. and certain plants, uh, spider plants in particular, have been shown to be amazing air filterers. Essentially, I, I know a study that I looked at for the uh, writing of Why on Earth showed that within five minutes in controlled environments, a spider plant was shown to measurably reduce uh, airborne carcinogens. Mm -hmm. and what a what a wonderful simple kind of thing we can all be doing get some spider plants into our homes into our offices they're relatively easy to care for Mm -hmm. and um there there are so many other uh examples of course you mentioned getting out with trees and there's i've seen a lot of research coming out about how uh literally five or even ten minutes uh being surrounded by and looking at living trees will measurably reduce stress hormones in our bodies. Okay, fabulous! Like we have um, <laughs> cities, we have some access to to parks and uh, forest preserves and so forth. So I, I just I'm struck absolutely. by how hopeful all of this can be for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, kind of to piggyback on that, I was reading an article recently about the amygdala and being in nature. Um, So the amygdala, among other things, controls our fear response. And um, I don't know if you've seen the movie, um, what is it called, Free Solo, about the man who free soloed El Capitan. So one of the reasons he was able to do this is because his amygdala is actually physically smaller than the average person and so he doesn't experience the same fear response in those dangerous situations that most of us do allowing him to persevere through that situation when most of us would be frozen with fear um but something that being in nature does is actually kind of tempers this fear response and so it's inevitable that it's going to be triggered at some point in your day just because you know, things happen. But if you're able to then calm it down every day as well, it's just, again, going to promote kind of a little bit more harmony in, you know, just the brain, which is great.
0: Yeah, it seems really interesting, you know, in so many of our interactions socially and in clubs at work, uh, organizations we may uh, belong to, uh, there can often be exchanges that trigger, essentially, the the fight or flight mm-hmm. uh, and, and that, you know, often interferes with our ability to communicate with one another, to maintain compassion, open hearts. And it strikes me that one of our biggest practices, when even when we're thinking about global issues of stewardship and sustainability, have to do with the cultivation of our own neurobiochemistry and really kind of training or developing some discipline yeah. around, um, changing habits in, in terms of responding to different stimuli, different situations. And I, I know you're in deep studying this sort of thing. And I'm wondering if um, you might share mm-hmm. how that all works and, and perhaps even, you know, tie it a bit to the to epigenetics. It, it could be some of our, our audience aren't as familiar with that term epigenetics. Uh, maybe you could sure. expand on that a bit.
1: Sure. Um, So epigenetics basically is when your environment physically changes your genetics. So so we all have a DNA strand that we're given from birth, and um, certain proteins are going to be expressed or not expressed depending upon the environment. So it's not that your genetic basis is changing at all, but let's say you know, um, you have a, I'm not even sure this is true. This is just going to be an example. Let's say if you are eating an only sugar diet, um, it's gonna, you're going to have a lot more carbohydrates to break down than let's say proteins or fats. And so the proteins that are required to break down the carbohydrates will need to be upregulated or, um, the genetic sequence that is made for that protein is going to be expressed more. And then the proteins that would be expressed for breaking down proteins or fats, the enzymes that would be expressed for breaking down proteins or fats, would need to be downregulated. And this is just to conserve energy. And this is happening all the time in the body um, for different things from you know, dealing with temperature fluxes in your body and around your body um, to stress, to sleep, to caffeine, to all of these different things. So your body is a very dynamic system. It's constantly changing depending on what kind of environment you put it in and expose it to. Um, So that's kind of what epigenetics you you're born with a predisposition for X y and z disease that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to get X y and Z disease It just means that if given the right environment you could develop it but that also means that if you give it the right environment you may not at all develop any symptoms and you may live a very healthy life Now this is a very um, new discovery in the greater scheme of things and so, The science isn't there yet to say, okay, we know how to prevent cancer for you by just giving you the right environment, but we are headed in that direction um, to where I I think we will be able to use our genetic sequence to be able to live a life um, more or less to the benefit of ourselves based on what our genetics are. But like I said, that's a a long time coming. That's probably not in my lifetime or my, if I have children or grandchildren, it's probably a ways out. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of stress responses in like our everyday life, when that fight or flight response is triggered, there are certain things that we can do just to lower our cortisol and some of those other chemicals. Um that circulate in our bloodstream to, you know, make us excited enough to fight or flight, basically. Um, So something that I found really interesting is that our heart is really sensitive um, electromagnetically and so there actually is about a nine foot or three meter um, radius around your heart that your heart can detect electromagnetic differences. So if you think about that, nine feet is a pretty far way away. So when you're in a crowd, you could be interacting with 12 other people's, you know, electromagnetic pulses from their heart, right? And so if you're in a crowd and everyone is experiencing fear, even if you're thinking I'm not going to experience this, your body is still registering that fact and is having a response to some effect. On the contrary, if everyone is experiencing fear and you are aware of that and can calm down your heart, then that calm is also being emitted to the people around you, and that can have an effect as well. Um, so something that the HeartMath Institute has kind of shown and developed is that, but also is um, showing that deep breathing and diaphragm breathing has shown to decrease this kind of fear response in your heart and um, help other people around you then also become more calm, more hopeful, even in stressful situations. And so deep breathing, diaphragmatic breathing is really deeply important to combating stress in your everyday life.
0: This is so exciting. So I have to give a quick shout out to one of our ambassadors, John Parcell, uh, who works with HeartMath and is helping get uh, to okay. get more of the HeartMath uh, technology and techniques into uh, various healthcare, care uh, hospitals, uh, corporations, schools, etc. Um, so this is so exciting and I'm I'm so struck i one of the things i've been experimenting with the last year or two is uh when standing in line at the grocery store, especially around rush hour toward the end of the day when people seem to be really stressed and the store tends to be a bit busier uh, i'll often uh, just be there in line without you know being conspicuous about it but i'll I'll work on essentially cultivating calm and love and joy and gratitude and kind of feel like i'm maybe uh, sharing that outward and i didn't realize the mechanism uh until you described it this way it's what an amazing gift what an amazing tool Mm -hmm. that we each have with us each and every day and my gosh how much could we positively change our world as thousands and millions of us work to cultivate this kind of uh ethos through through Mm -hmm. that How how do we know about this? Like, What instruments have allowed us to understand this electromagnetic property of the heart?
1: That's a great question. I don't know that much about the research. Yeah. I would assume it has to do with... I mean, my assumption would be maybe electromagnetic probes in two different humans and then giving a fear response in one, having it, them in... You know, physical proximity and seeing if there's a response in another. Yeah. But I wouldn't know for sure.
0: And not to get too far afield, you know, pun intended, um, we mm. have some uh, guests on the show in the near future who have been working with ways to demonstrate that plants may actually be mm. interacting with this same sort of electromagnetic radiation and that there's some interactivity there that uh, some folks are working on. There's been research going back at least to the 70s on this, but it sounds like in the last decade or so, things are really progressing in our scientific understanding of, of what's going on in this incredible place we call Earth.
1: Absolutely. And I think too, part of that has to do with um, a change in the scientific community. So not to say that the research from the 70s wasn't great research, but the scientific community didn't accept it because it seemed, you know, outlandish or just almost like sci-fi or new agey or whatever you want to call it, you know, but, um, a lot, I think it's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Like there are enough people that are credible that are showing this research. And so, you know, the scientific community can't help but to recognize it now, which is great.
0: It's so exciting. Yeah, you know, I, I know that some of our, um, our clock works that allowed us to mechanically show the complex motions of, of the planets in our solar system and mm-hmm. so probably informed what became a, a quite mechanistic way of understanding all of reality. And, and with when it comes to biology, mm-hmm. when it comes to living, uh, creatures like you, like me, like all our friends and family, like plants, like animals. Um, it seems that the, the mechanistic, uh, paradigm is, is really insufficient in, in many ways to, to understanding, uh, what's happening in those extraordinarily complex systems.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a reductionistic view, which You know, when you're a small child, you have to reduce things in order to wrap your head around it. And we've been basically infants for all of human history, you know, like just now, maybe we're becoming toddlers, maybe. But there's still, we just, we don't have the capacity to fully understand a lot of the things in our universe. And so we have to take a reductionistic view in order to try and make prediction, to try and understand some mechanism, but at the end of the day, like we still do not have a full picture, mm-hmm. and it's incredibly important to remember that when you're doing research, when you're um, learning, and to be constantly fighting to push that reductionism kind of out of your head and to look at the big picture and to take into count, account all of the pieces.
0: Yeah yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm difficult. struck that um, uh, interacting with some of my friends who are either uh, traditionally trained as scientists or tend toward a quote-unquote scientific worldview, and so often I think the um, categorical mistake gets made that uh, to be able to prove something with certainty within the scientific paradigm um, versus understanding that there's so much to truth and to reality that isn't, that our science, our, our instrumentation, our experimental frameworks are simply not sophisticated enough yet to get into that realm of proving or disproving. And it, yeah. it creates a really challenging epistemological uh, framework. What do we know? What don't we know, et cetera. And I often see folks who ascribe to the scientific, uh, you know, paradigm, if you will, getting tripped up around that
1: mm-hmm yeah absolutely yeah. But i think there's much growth to be done and i think it will be done and just you know we've been around for 120,000 years and i've only gotten here so
0: uh-huh.
1: we'll take time
0: yeah so i want to ask a little more about um what we can do for for inflammation this is such a a big deal on it seems more and more people's minds and uh i know of course uh a lot of sugar can cause inflammation i i know more and more folks who are uh, taking turmeric and ginger uh to help reduce inflammation Mm -hmm. stuff we find traditionally in the drink called chai um so what else What else can we be doing to to regulate inflammation?
1: Um, Well, a lot of it has to do with the gut. So ensuring that the gut is healthy, taking probiotics, um, you know, seeing your provider to ensure that you don't have something like SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, which actually a lot of people suffer from or something like IBS would be kind of the result of an imbalanced gut. So really looking at the gut and making sure everything is imbalanced and working with a practitioner for that. But on a more personal level, avoiding um, alcohol as much as possible, really limiting you know your red meat, your corn, your dairy, your gluten, unfortunately, I know all the things we love. Um, yeah, your sugar. Um, eggs can even be a little bit inflammatory depending upon your system, but it also, I mean, the best advice I've ever gotten and my best advice I think I could ever give someone in terms of nutrition and taking care of the body is listen to your own body. So pay attention if you're getting bloated, pay attention if you're feeling fatigued, if you are getting sick a lot. Um, if you have allergies, all of these are are kind of signs that you are having some inflammation in your body. And you can start to kind of pinpoint, okay, when I eat corn, I feel X, Y, and Z. So then avoid corn for a month and see if you feel better. And if it's not that, then maybe try eliminating something else that you pinpoint, you know, and have fun with it. Experiment with yourself. Like, life is joyful. And how much fun is it to get to know yourself and get to know how your body works, you know? Um, But even beyond that, uh, cryotherapy, which is something that I do for my job right now, is great for inflammation reduction. Um, And that is something that's popping up kind of all over the U.S. right now. So that's great if you can, you know, find one of those.
0: So, explain what is um,
1: getting enough sleep. <laughs>
0: okay. oh, sure, yeah. So, yeah, so, sort of, yeah what, cryotherapy, because I, I imagine some of our audience may not be familiar with that term.
1: Yeah, so cryotherapy is a treatment where you get into a chamber that is cooled with uh, liquid nitrogen. And we know liquid nitrogen is very, very cold, it actually can't exist as liquid in normal condition, so it turns into a gas as soon as, you know, it comes into contact with you or even comes into proximity with you. So you're in this session for up to three minutes and it gets to, you know, you really want to be around, well, at least colder than negative 60 degrees Celsius. Once you hit that negative 60 degrees Celsius mark, then you're gonna get to see the benefits that are promised from cryotherapy But some of the machines, like the one that I work with, gets to, what is it, negative 120 degrees Celsius, which is about negative 180 Fahrenheit, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Wow, that's really cold.
1: That's pretty cold, yeah. But it's only three minutes, totally doable.
0: So um, you just mentioned sleep and I, you know, I've thought one of the things I really enjoy about uh, getting older that as your dad, I have the opportunity to speak to from time to time is that uh, just from my own experience, I'm able to know ahead of time, oh, if I today, if I sense, and this is about listening to body, oh, I I probably need some avocado or I probably need an an extra large uh, heaping salad of organic greens. And I uh-huh. actually know I will feel uh, a good way the following day. And certain uh-huh. herbs, certain um, uh, superfoods do this for me. Blueberries are one of my favorites that I enjoy here and there. And uh, to be able to get to that place in life where where we kind of know that about ourselves is such a joy and such a delight. And... Uh-huh. For me, sleep is is one that's just huge, and mm-hmm. I know that um, sleep deprivation uh, and or uh, insufficient sleep is is a major issue for a whole lot of us in this country and yeah. society. Um, but I, it seems that this is one of the really big top priority items. What what do you tell your patients when it comes to sleep? Uh,
1: well. I don't really talk to them about sleep just because that's not like, I don't have kind of the qualification to speak to that. Yeah, okay. Um, but you know, something that I've overheard and that I would tell my loved ones is, um, obviously to prioritize sleep. And I actually, one of my favorite books that I've ever read and something that got me really interested in neuroscience is, um, I want to say, I am I think it may be called sleep and I forget who it's written by, but I can get you that information if you want to put it in something. And um, it basically outlines, I think, 10 steps to getting a good night's sleep. So, um, and kind of resetting your circadian rhythms. One of, you know, just off the top of my head, I think it lists, turning off anything that emits blue light one to two hours before you go to bed. Um, actually, when you get up in the morning, you taking a walk is really important. And it's even better if you can take a walk outside and see natural sunlight. The Taking a walk actually warms up your brain. So your brain is about three to five degrees cooler than the rest of your body while you sleep. And so in the morning, it's not it's literally not warmed up. So, um, it's great to take just even a 15 minute walk to get kind of the juices flowing and to warm up your brain so that it knows, okay, it's time to be awake. Um, seeing the sunlight really helps with your hormone system and resetting that circadian rhythm and all of the sleep hormone cycles of the day. Um, excuse me, you know, having a nighttime care routine is really important. So even if it's just brushing your teeth for the same amount of time every day in the same place, that tells your brain it's time to go to sleep, it's time to begin winding down. Um, And that, again, is going to help with your sleeping. I've learned that I love sleeping with a sleep mask. Actually, thank you to my wonderful grandmother, your mom. Uh, she got me a silk sleep mask for Christmas, and now um, if I wake up in the middle of the night or have trouble sleeping, all I have to do is put on my sleep mask. And I'm not particularly sensitive to light, but the fact that it puts pressure on my eyes calms my entire nervous system. And so that's something for me that I found is like better than taking sleep medication. It's it's amazing, you know. And so. Finding little things like that can really help with your sleep. Um, Magnesium is great for your sleep. So a lot of the reason um, behind why magnesium works is actually magnesium is a critical element in um, the hormones that are necessary for sleep. And magnesium is something that is also used in stressful situations by our body. So most of us are actually magnesium deficient. Um, And so taking magnesium right before you go to bed, just a low dose, is great for making sure that your body can produce those hormones to allow you to fall asleep and stay asleep. And it shouldn't make you feel groggy in the morning because it's just, you know, these normal chemicals that your body is making. You're just giving it the building blocks.
0: Yeah, I sometimes use a little uh, powdered magnesium in my water Mm -hmm. when I'm getting ready to to go to sleep. yeah that's great there's certain music I like to listen to that I've been listening to since high school actually that Mm. is one of those uh signalers that you're describing that tells yeah brain and body oh it's time to go to sleep we know
1: this we know yeah yeah exactly um something else sorry that I just thought of is exercise is really important for the regulation of your hormones but um Exercising too late can also interrupt your sleep. So exercising earlier in the day is great for maintaining a good sleep cycle as well.
0: That's so wonderful. And don't
1: eat too late either. All these little things keep jumping into my head.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me mention uh, for our audience that this is the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability Podcast Series. Today, we are speaking with my daughter, Osha Chestnut Perry. And uh, I want to be sure to give a shout out to our sponsors, which include uh, Waylay Waters. Of course, uh, a hot bath can be, and some aromatherapy can be very helpful for sleep. So, Waylay Waters, um, Purium, uh, the Brad and Lindsay Lidge Foundation, Earth Coast Productions the International Society of Sustainability Professionals, the Association of Waldorf Schools of North America, and I wanna also give a special shout out to uh, both Patagonia and Equal Exchange for their recent support of our leadership summit, Massively Mobilizing Sustainability. Also, we have a new monthly giving program, and I'm so excited. We're already seeing a beautiful response to this. And for you enjoying the podcast, uh, you can become a monthly supporter at any level uh, that works for you by going to whyonearth.org support. Of course, please uh, like and share and follow with Twitter and Facebook and the social media out there. Um, and a special giveaway for our audience, you can use the code MOBILIZE uh, to get free downloads of our ebook and audiobook resources. And please share this with your friends and family. We uh, are already seeing downloads in over two dozen countries, every continent, not counting Antarctica yet, but all the other continents. So, this is a great way to help get our stewardship, sustainability, and thriving information out there. And, um, OSHA, I'm so thrilled. I often take notes when I'm uh, having these podcast discussions and my paper is just about filled up. I don't know if you can see this.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's it, great. It's just wonderful to be able to speak with you and connect so many dots with you. And uh, I, I'm sure uh, that many of our audience are going to really appreciate this episode with the specific things we can be doing in our own lives. And I'm just I'm wondering, you know, before we wrap up in the next few minutes, um, what else, from your perspective, with your studies in uh, neuroscience, your your studies and work in the the health and wellness uh, arenas, what else, from your perspective, has you excited? What what are you saying? Gosh, I wish millions of more people knew about this. What would you What would you share with with the, with the world about, uh, about your view on things.
1: Yeah, um, so I'm gonna get a little bit more personal then because this is something that I think has really just been an aha moment for me. Um, it's not research-based, although I'm sure there is actually bunches of research out there to back me up on this. Um, but really, the one thing that i think everyone should become aware of is the physical and emotional effects positive effects of living with um more of a humanitarian and you know kind of loving and kind attitude every day of your life can have so i think something for me that i've really been working on these past several years is just being kind to people and you know waking up every morning and thinking what can i do for humanity today and how can i you know lift some of the heaviness of the world today and live a little bit lighter and this is something internally that i have to work on you know working on my heavy emotions my heavy thoughts Mm -hmm. um and then also more externally, so not getting frustrated when traffic is bad and I'm running late for something, or um, when you know it's just been a hard day and everything's a little chaotic. Taking a deep breath and reminding myself that if I'm feeling this way, probably other people are feeling this way too, and so something I can do about that is to just be extra kind and smile to a stranger, you know tell someone they look beautiful, tell someone that I really enjoy speaking with them or I enjoy their thoughts. Um, And yeah, just like really trying to live with love in your heart every single day. And I think something that I would like to say to everyone that's viewing today, if you have children or young people in your life, I think something that is fundamentally important to our future is teaching them that the most valuable thing that they can do with their lives is dedicated to something greater than themselves and dedicated to other people. And that can look like a lot of different things. That might be having children and bringing them up in a home of love. That might be being a chef and cooking great food for people. That might be being a farmer and growing good food per- for people. Um, It might even, you know, be in these things that we think are harsh climates that could be in advertising and choosing to take the jobs that are promoting sustainable products. You know, it could be in politics and really fighting for these issues that um, aren't so popular. Um, And, you know, everything that you can do, you can do in a way that serves humanity or you can do it in a way that doesn't and so I would just say to everyone like really think about how you're living your life and how you can do it to support your fellow humans your fellow animals your fellow plants your your world your home Um, and that's it
0: that is so beautiful Osha
1: well I learned from the best (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I love you tremendously, and you bring great joy to me, and I'm extraordinarily proud of you. And it is thank such you. a joy to be able to share a, 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 a taste of the exquisite conversations you and I have with our audience, and I'm just grateful we've been able to have this conversation today, Osha. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. This has been lovely. What a great Sunday.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we'll sign off for now. And uh, I'm sure we'll all be talking soon.
2: Sounds great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org backslash support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code whyonearth. All one word